Now, here's a question for you. Have you sought financial advice lately? Have you wanted to, but pulled back because it was too expensive? Important questions, these, as part of a significant argument that's brewing about the duties of those offering advice. Should an advisor be required to act in, quotes, the client's best interests, or would offering good advice be sufficient to lower costs so that more people then sought advice? Now, this is all prompted by the government releasing a draft consultation paper commissioned by the Morrison government. A senior lawyer, Michelle Levy, has prepared this review and she's recommended this lower standard of good advice. Whereas consumer advocates and others, quite an interesting range actually, think it could pave the way for big banks and big super funds to return to the wealth management sector. I'm pleased now to welcome David Bell to help us understand better. He's the Executive Director of the Conexus Institute. It's a not-for-profit working in the retirement sector. Good morning and welcome. Good morning, Geraldine. Thanks for having me. Uh, David, didn't this all get solved years ago when the Rudd government proposals were finally, Rudd-Gillard government proposals, uh, were finally passed through the Matthias Cormann-led Senate in, I think, 2012-13 in what was called the Future of Financial Advice Legislation, FOFA, on which we did quite a few stories. And now it's back again, is it? That's right. So we've had you know, a decade of reforms uh, to financial advice sector and the duties required and the regulatory process attached to it. And a lot of industry participants would just say that now we're bogged down in this quagmire of you know, paperwork and compliance load. And so the argument is that the cost of advice has gone up, so it's available to less people from a value-to-money perspective. But we've also seen a number of advisors leave the industry. So we're nearly have seen a halving of the size of the industry from about 30,000 advisors down to currently around 17,000. And is it is this, are we sure this is, can be sheeted home to the reforms or has something else shifted? <laughs> I'm just trying to drill down to make sure we actually know what has caused it because, I mean, they also were required to have a lot more qualifications and so on. I mean, this was a massive shakeout really of that industry. That's right. So there's there's probably been a number of reasons why the advice number advisor numbers have come down, and and maybe some overlapping reasons, but also some separate reasons why the cost of advice has gone up. So you're you're right that the regulatory requirements have gone up. There's been a, a, a transition to advice becoming a higher regarded profession, and attached to that has been a lot of education requirements and. Uh, things like ethics duties and, and internal education. So that's probably contributed to some of these exits. What you've also seen has been the exit of big banks from providing advice. And with that, a number of advisors left the industry at that point. So mm. the trend has been down. Um, in terms of cost of providing advice, when you go and get professional financial advice and you receive a statement of advice, there's a huge amount of compliance behind that. And the advice industry, uh, through surveys and responses to, to, to groups like ASIC as well, have been saying that all this compliance load is is 
really aggregating up into a higher cost of service to clients. Right. Um, I mean, the review of financial services was commissioned by the former government as a three-year follow-up on quality, but it does seem to have turned into this quite broad review given the the scope of its recommendations in the interim report handed down this week. Um, What's your general feeling about this best and good recommendation? I think that's the most interesting thing. You're really right to call out, Geraldine, that the initial review, and it's actually still called the Quality of Advice Review, and it was meant to follow on from the Hain Royal Commission and and look at impact and some further potential changes. It's now really shifted into these these areas of accessibility and affordability of advice. And Michelle Levy's really has turned it on its head. She would. She said in the paper that we have an industry that regulates the content of of the advice. Sorry, that we regulate the conduct of the advisor, and we really need to switch that around and focus on regulating the content of the advice. Which, at the outset, sounds pretty sensible, but then it goes to what you're saying, and that is, can that all work in practice? And um, yeah, there's lots of that's where all that's where all the debate is at the moment. So. Remind us about why this provision of best interest was brought in. It was extremely harsh, uh, uh, properly argued, as as I recall. Um, Uphill, down Dale. So why was it brought in in the first place? Well, it was brought in because we had structures like commissions and we had many, many examples of Consumers not being treated as well as they should in a in a fiduciary situation, which is what the advice relationship is, and so the rule came in to to make it crystal clear that you should be putting the best interests of your client first. Um, that's sort of what we call the regulation of the regulating the conduct of the advisor model. Mm. And, and that's, so that's been tested a, in court. I mean, th- these are these come down to legalities, don't they, as to how you would test this. If somebody, yeah, so this is yeah. why the words matter. That's right. And so a change like this would could result in a huge, you know, you lose so much case law that does provide direction uh, because you, you, the proposal is really to tip the system on its head a bit and, and really focus in on the content of the advice. So, so getting industry standards or accepted definitions of what is good quality advice is going to be a whole new process to discover and to build up on and and how would you test this in practice? It was probably a, a panel of external advisors saying, well, what would I have done in that situation? That's sort of some of the things that still need to be resolved in a framework like this. So if this was adopted, uh, might it mean that, say, uh, big banks, investment managers, superannuation funds, insurance companies, that they might resume issuing customers with advice, I mean, might it mean, and honestly, I'm not trying to put words into your mouth, might it mean they effectively um, become, they issue good advice about their products versus best advice strategically for that particular person? I mean, it's quite uh, tricky, isn't it? It is tricky and that's sort of, I just put my submission in uh, at the start of this week and, and that's my concern that in the desire to meet this challenge of accessibility and affordability that we end up with an industry that delivers lots of pieces of what I call limited advice rather than comprehensive advice. You do that at a lower cost, but a lot of that advice would be provided by product providers. So like you say, the insurance companies, the super funds, the investment managers, 
And so there is that trade-off there between getting, you know, limited pieces of strategic advice, but you're probably not going to get much at all in the way of any sort of product recommendation there. It's going to be having to accept that you're walking into this dealership effectively and they're going to give you advice on on these particular products and how to use them. Is that why this? Because there has been um, a, um, a an unpublished submission to Treasury, which has been reported by the Financial Review, and the document um, is co-signed by Choice, the Consumer Action Law Centre, the Financial Rights Legal Centre, and the Financial Counselling Australia, and they've. Now, they're an interesting range, I would have thought. Mm. They're opposed to this. What are you finding in your questioning? Uh, other, you know, who is opposed, who is in favour of this? There is a real mix and it's coming from different sectors. So my observations are that a lot of financial planners, the traditional financial planning industry, welcome a reduction in compliance load. That can, They're saying this can result in lower costs and... For their, for their businesses, which can be passed on to clients and hopefully a little bit more scale there. But that's not the key solution to this problem. The, the key solution is this challenge of can we really have a system where these sort of limited pieces of advice provided by product providers provide the big uplift and can that be done safely? And that's where the consumer groups appear to be really concerned. My, my comment to the review is that Michelle Levy's you know, outlined a, a separate regime regulating the content of the advice rather than the conduct of the advisor. And my question in the submission I made is, does it have to be one or the other? Can we cherry pick elements of both which provide really good protections for consumers without and, and, and increasing the potential uh, accessibility? Does it need to be one or the other? And I think, because at the moment you've got Michelle Levy in one camp, and then you've got the consumer groups in another camp. Well, as the uh, Fin Review says, it also sort of it pits small and independent business owners and consumer groups against superannuation fund giants and financial institutions. So there's another little cleavage there. Yeah, some of the, the advice community is concerned about other groups being able to use that word advice when you've, you, you've outlined the pathway they've been on to where they are now to have that word advice being used by other groups with different pricing structures and so forth would be is concerning to those groups it's been it's been hard one steps for them to be recognized as a profession who in your experience does seek advice what sort of age groups and types of people seek advice yeah we've just actually finished a research piece on this where we surveyed a thousand australians and it's fascinating that advice as a topic doesn't really, it just bubbles along. You want to balance your household finances and budgeting. And then all of a sudden, when you're in your 60s, the need for advice just shoots up and it's all about getting that retirement advice piece. And so that's where the demand for financial advisors just shoots through the roof. People realise what a complex problem that is. I can no longer rely on my working income and I need to have a, a financial plan in place that can set me up for the next next stage of my life. So that's where the greatest element of 
demand sits. Mm. I mean, actually, one of the other recommendations is that financial advisors would no longer be required to produce a statement of advice. You know, when you go along and you do do this big statement of advice, your attitude to risk and really sort of gets you thinking, I think, about yourself uh, having done this. Um, That would also change under the Michelle Levy uh, proposals. Am I right? That's right. So, but the wording there is that advisors can determine the best way to what form of advice they think would best suit the client. So, for instance, there's some great technologies now where this sort of statement of advice is delivered via a video, for instance, or a recording. And you can listen to that and you can even record the conversation you have with your advisor. And so what Michelle Levy's trying to do there is empower advisors to work out the best way to communicate because there's a lot of research and that's showing that people aren't reading these 100-page documents. They cost <laughs> a lot of money to produce. You know, maybe if it was three pages, that would be great. Yeah, so she's sort of trying to empower the industry to, to look through the lens of the, uh, of the client. Interesting. Um, look, in your – because I know you're also concerned about just general financial, financial literacy in Australia. You don't think it's at the level it ought to be and that people oughtn't be suddenly discovering this at the age of 60. Um, you know, can you see indications in this document – uh, of trying to bring it to more, genuinely trying to reach more people at a younger level? I think if, if it gets out to those broader groups, limited advice being provided by groups like super funds and investment managers, but probably super funds particularly, it might well be a, a check-in point that uh, people who don't want to spend a lot of money on advice can can get small pieces of advice. And hopefully you'll see under this reform you might see New advisors enter the marketplace with a clean sheet of paper to provide that sort of service as well. But financial literacy is such a difficult thing. It's it's actually a worldwide problem. Australia's numbers are probably similar to the rest of the developed world. And what we've found in our survey, however, is that there's a real connection now between financial advice and poor management of your financial affairs. And that's that's the really concerning piece. So Very that takes interesting. you back to school, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> Okay, David Bell, thank you very much indeed for threading your way through that. Pleasure. Thanks, Geraldine. And I think the final um, uh, review by the government comes out on December the 16th, so that is really one to watch, I think. David Bell from the Conexus Institute. Listen to more great stories that take you beyond the headlines. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.